Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the kingdom of God, and we're going to do it by looking at Matthew 26. So we've gone almost through Matthew. We've got a few more chapters to go. Matthew 26 is a pretty long chapter. Uh, it's also a very significant chapter because we're coming up on the trial of Christ. And, of course, it involves the plot against him. Why? Why were they trying to kill Jesus? Just because he had a little bit different doctrine than them? Or that there were all kinds of factions at the altar. We have an actual article up, the factions at the altar. We have to realize, that, again, that Judea was a government. The temple was a government building. Government uh, employees worked in the temple, providing government services for the people. And those services were called religion uh, by some in those days. The, I mean, the word religion only shows up like five times in the Bible. And uh, most of the time it's talking about bad religion. So evidently there was religion that was not good. Was, was Jesus' religion one of those bad religions? Is that why they were against him? Well, in a roundabout sort of way. But if you don't understand what they were actually doing in temples... You may not actually understand what was wrong with the bad religion compared to the good religion. We know Christ was criticizing the Corban of the Pharisees. And Corban is a Hebrew word that means sacrifice. So something was wrong with the way in which people were sacrificing at the temple. And it was causing young men to do no more aught for their parents. So the sacrifice that they were making at the temple was causing them to do at least less for their parents, not taking care of their parents, not providing for their parents, because they were, what they would have given their parents, they had given at the temple. And now evidently it was the responsibility of the temple to take care of their parents. They, they didn't have to do it. The government, Officers and, and employees that were working at the temple could now take care of their parents. They didn't have to do it. They gave money to the temple and now the temple was supposed to take care of their parents. So they would do no more odd for their parents or at least less than they would normally do for their parents. So what, what is that really all about? That they're going to the government employees at the temple of Herod to get taken care of if they had needs. I mean, we see that in John, which we'll get to John. We've talked about this before, where the blind man is healed by Christ and he's professing Jesus as the Christ because he knows Jesus healed him. He doesn't know what Jesus looks like. He didn't see Jesus. Jesus put some clay in his eyes and spit in his eyes and, and told him to go wash it out. And when he washed it out, all of a sudden he could see. And so he's going around telling people, you know, I can see because Jesus, the Christ, the, the Messiah, the, the, the Savior, healed me. 
I was blind and now I see. And so they had already made a rule. We know this in the gospel. At that particular time, they had made a rule that if you got the baptism of Jesus Christ instead of the baptism of Herod and the Pharisees, you were going to get cast out of the temple. They they weren't going to let you be a member of both systems. Now, one system operated in the temple. You know, basically in the temple. It actually operated all over the Roman Empire. And, and you know, it was a revelation to me. You know, I was always asking way back some 70 years ago. Almost 70 years ago. 60 what, 60, I try to think, 62 years ago, I was asking archbishops and priests, uh, what were they doing in the temples? What, what was going on in those temples? Cause it was, it just seemed like a hole. Nobody would tell you what they were doing in those temples. Well, one of the things they did in some of the temples was take care of the needy of society. They provided free bread. From the temples. It was the temple of Roma built by Herod. The temple in Jerusalem built by Herod. Both of them provided free bread. And that's what you see in John. That if he continues to profess this Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the anointed king, as the highest son of David... He's going to be kicked out. And so they go to his parents and they say, what's the deal with your son? He's professing Christ. And they knew, they think in their minds. That's what the gospel tells us, that if we also profess Christ, and why are they going to his parents? Because that's the way Israel was organized. Family was everything. You first organized in your family. Families. This was this is the promise of Jubilee that we would return every man to his family and to his possessions. So the family owned what the family produced. They had the means of production belonging to the family. There was no inheritance tax. That would be that would be a sin. To have an inheritance tax. Because you knew that when the father died, it didn't go to his son. Some of it went to your neighbors or to the government. To these men who were working in the temple. You know, whatever temple. Whether it was a Roman temple or, you know, a Ukrainian temple or a U.S. temple or a temple in Jerusalem. Wherever, whenever. If there's an inheritance tax, it goes to the government. doesn't go to the sons. Well, that's pretty clear that you don't belong to the family, you belong to the government. <laughs> so, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out, wait a minute. If I'm taxing widows and orphans, I'm probably not practicing pure religion. Because pure religion was the taking care of the widows and orphans. We know this from James. Unspotted by the world. And we know the word world there means constitutional order or system of government. So we're supposed to be taking care of the widows and orphans without the use of the government. That's pure religion. Now you may not be practicing pure religion. You may be dependent upon 
a government to take care of the widows and orphans. Maybe even to take care of your parents. Of course, you would have to do less for your parents now because the government's taking care of your parents. Of course, you can justify that in your mind because you say, well, I gave to the government. And the government now takes care of my parents. But that's what Jesus was complaining about. (laughs) Their Corbin, their sacrifice, was causing sons to do less for their parents. Because the government was taking care of their parents. And that's what the blind man's parents were worried about. That, oh my gosh, if we profess Jesus as the Messiah, the King, the Christ, we're going to get kicked out of the social welfare system. And we can't depend upon our son for taking care of us. Because he's blind. or Well, well, wait a minute. I guess he was blind, but he doesn't have any skills. He doesn't have a job. I mean, we don't know how long this is going to last. We don't want to get kicked out of the social welfare system run through the temple of Herod and by the system of Corbin set up by Herod and the Pharisees where you signed up and you had to pay in. We we don't want to lose that of course that's what Christ is preaching is another system that is not like their system it's the Corbin of Christ we have an article on the Corbin of Christ and of course Christ says you're not to be like these men these governments he actually says governments that exercise authority one over the other they call themselves benefactors now that's right in the text now just before the program I heard news people talking about Ministers who preached the gospel and uh, knew that they had to get involved in governments of the world to get them so that they would not persecute Christians. But we know that the Christians were persecuted because they wouldn't sign up for the temples. And of course, uh, we know the Christians were all kicked out of the temple run by the Pharisees. But we also know that after Pentecost, that the apostles were working daily in that temple, in that government temple. They were working daily in the temple. At what? What were they doing? You know, were they, they, they singing songs and, uh, and waving their hands and having big long sermons. No, they they were rightly dividing the bread from house to house. Oh, that's right. What bread? Welfare. Social welfare. I mean, you need that. Because sometimes there's widows. Sometimes there's orphans. And sometimes, you know, maybe her husband didn't die, but maybe he got injured. Maybe he got injured in the war. Like when Moses set up the first altar of Jehovah Nisi. Way back there in Exodus, when we did our study on Exodus, we talked about that. We have articles still up on that, as well as the recordings at Preparing You. You can go back and listen and find out what the altars of Nisi were. Because there there was a sacrifice of Nisi talked about later on in the Bible, where the priests had to have to do this sacrifice, this Nisi thing. What? And, and, you know, when we talked about it before, we we were trying to figure out what, why did he call the altar Jehovah Nisi? <laughs> and all the 
all the uh, commentaries had all these theories about it. And we show you. But that's not the topic of today. We show you in those recordings. You have to go back and listen to them. We're going to look at this Matthew 26. You know, which is, of course, between Matthew 25 and 27. And 25, where they talked about the foolish virgins who, who didn't have oil. And we talked about what does that oil represent? That, that's a metaphor for something. And, and they couldn't, they weren't allowed into the wedding feast because they came too late. And they came too late because when the bridegroom came, they weren't ready. They had been dancing and having a good time, maybe singing and waving their hands, but they didn't have any oil. And they didn't bring any with them. And so they weren't allowed in the feast. And, you know, that's a kind of a mean story that, that, uh, Jesus is telling. They weren't allowed in the feast. But, of course, they were, they knew they didn't have any oil when the bridegroom was coming, so they tried to get oil from their neighbor. And they, their neighbor said, no, you know, he's coming now. We don't have, we can't give you our oil. We, we have our oil. We can't give it to you. You have to go get your own oil. <laughs> and so, very important to know what that oil is. It, it, it represents something. How do you get oil? And we talked a little bit about how you get oil. You have to press it out sometimes. <laughs> Squeeze it out of things that provide oil. And uh, they didn't have any. And of course, we also have talked to you about uh, not having the wedding garments. So, you know, there's the bride and there's the groom. And there's probably the the people that are right in the you know in the the wedding party they call them you know, you know best men and all that kind of stuff and bridesmaids and all these others that come along to help with the bride and the wedding and all that and some people are going to be called to do that and some people are not going to be called to do that but a lot of people are called to the wedding feast you want to go to the wedding feast. So if you don't know what that oil is, you ought to find out how to get some. Because you want, when the time comes, it'll be too late to go get the oil. And then you're going to want to slip into that wedding garment too. Because <laughs> we know what happens to the guy who didn't have the wedding garment. So all these things, and he talked about, we talked about taxes back there in 25 and usury and, and God gives us gifts. He gives us the means of production that was given to us by God. We were endowed with the means of production, which is our sweat and our toil and our labor and whatever brain cells we got to figure out how to use our sweat and toil, you know, to to produce. Because we're supposed to be fruitful and multiply, which includes having children and and prospering our neighbor and prospering our community. Of course, now if we're out there taking a bite out of our neighbor and and sucking the life out of our community, well, then we're not really seeking the kingdom. And uh, we may have what gifts God has given us taken away. Because instead of being fruitful for the community and our families, we've we've uh, abased them. We've We've taken from them. We've become burdens upon them. 
and maybe through our sloth and avarice, through our anger and resentment, has caused us to become a burden to our neighbors because we didn't focus on the faith, hope, and charity that Christ preached. So, all this instruction coming before chapter 26 is pretty darn important for us to understand. Because it starts off right away with verse 1. And it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples. So all these sayings are the decrees of Christ. And the word sayings there is the word logos. Which is not just words. There's other Hebrew words that can be translated into uh, like rima. That could be, uh, or, or Greek words, uh, that could be translated into words or sayings. And, uh, but this is logos. And logos means right reason. It's all this right reasoning of Christ, this explanations of Christ, these decrees of the king. Because if you call him Christ, that's what you're calling him. You're calling him king. It means Messiah, Messiah, anointed. He had oil. (laughs) That's what you anoint with is oil. You want some of that oil too. And the way to do that, one of the ways to do that, in, in, in a relatively figurative sort of way, is to come in the name of Christ. If you're coming in the name of Christ, you're coming in the way of Christ. If you're coming in the way of Christ, you're coming according to the manner in which Christ came. And how did Christ come? What was Christ doing when he came? Well, he was, he was coming to serve, not to be served. So when you go to church, remember that. You go to church to serve others, to help your ministers rightly divide the bread from house to house, to take care of one another. Not to bite one another. That's not why you go to church. And now, what's church? Church is kind of the temple of God. Well, of course, you're all temples of God. You're all the living stones of God. So where are you going to receive your daily bread? Are you praying to somebody else's temple to get your daily bread? Or are you praying to the temple of God and all those stones of God? Those living stones of those other men who come in the name of Christ because they come to serve. They don't, they don't come to tickle your ears so that you serve them or their theology or ideology or eschatology, but they want you to serve God. Now, of course, we know to serve God, you know, and we've talked about this, the definition of religion 200 years ago. Back in the days of the American Constitution, religion was defined as the pious performance of a duty to God and your fellow man. So you should be, if you're going to church, to help take care of your fellow man, to serve, so that he might be saved. Because Christ came to serve so that you might be saved. So if you're coming in the name of Christ, you should be doing the same thing when you go to church or your temple. Some people call some churches a temple still. But your temple should be providing a daily ministration through the practice of pure religion. You should not be getting a daily ministration through covetous practices by going to governments that call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. So we've set the scene again. Very important. 
I don't hear these ministers before the show doing it. I don't hear ministers on Facebook doing it. I don't hear them on all these other churches doing that. They're quite the opposite. They're saying that it's okay to be that way. And Jesus said it was not to be that way. So I'm going with Jesus. So verse 2, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover. And the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. So he's already talked to them about this. They don't really seem to grasp it. But they know something about it. There's been conversations. We only have really snippets of the conversations that Christ had. And and it makes it very clear that some of the mysteries of the kingdom were not in the parables. They might be alluded to in the parables. But he says it's given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But it's not given to the general public. So we're gonna, we're gonna talk about the parables and try to hint around at what you're missing. And why did he talk in parables? Because the stories, if he was too direct, more direct than he was, they would have just burned all the Bibles. But if they can misinterpret the parables, and create other doctrines, they can use the Bible and change the meaning of words and use you. That was just in the news. Just before we <laughs> started the show, I heard them talking about this is, they're redefining socialism as wanting cheap things. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but uh, that's not what socialism Christ wasn't a socialist. And we, we saw that in the previous chapters that Christ and God is a capitalist. That was the whole parable of, you know, this guy gets five denarii and this guy gets three and this guy gets one and they, they come back with ten and they come back with six and they come back with just one because he didn't do anything with it. Because God's a capitalist. He gives you stuff, but he wants you to be fruitful with it. So in verse three, now the plot. There's kind of a shift here. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest. Which, of course, right away I'm wondering, why does the high priest have a palace? <laughs> who who was called Caiaphas? And, and I have an article linked there so you can learn more about Caiaphas. Because he's an interesting character. The last five high priests before Caiaphas were the sons of a guy named Ananias. Very wealthy guy. Very powerful guy. Because he's getting his sons made high priest. And they're living in wealthy uh, palaces that are more opulent than that of Herod the Great. According to archaeologists, that's what they tell me. They were very expensive now, meanwhile, Jesus is sleeping in the Garden of Gethsemane and staying up all night to watch and pray. A lot of people tell me how they pray, but how do they watch? What, what's, why is he asking them to watch and pray? And why is that so important? Well, we talked about that. But these guys are not watching and praying. They're plotting in their palaces to do away with Jesus. And they got Caiaphas in on this deal. Caiaphas is not the son of Ananias. He's the son-in-law of Ananias. So he's not a 
Really, he's married into that family. But we'll be right back and talk about that on Keys of the Kingdom. So, they were plotting against Jesus. Uh, why were they doing that? What, what was really upsetting them? Well, obviously he had some religious beliefs that were different. He also said that he was going to take the kingdom from them. If he was the king, Ananias was going to lose a lot of power. Because the king could do things that only the high priest could do. And evidently the high priest hadn't been doing them. At least according to the opinion of Christ, he hadn't been doing them. What was it? What was one of the things that he could do? And we've talked about this. Firing the money changers. The only ones who could fire the money changers is the king and the high priest. And that's what he was doing because the money changers were the porters of the temple. They were the keepers of the gate of the unrighteous mammon. Mammon is entrusted wealth. That's that's what the Aramaic word means. And of course, there was a lot of entrusted wealth going on there in that temple. They had gold all over the place. They They had places where you would drop in your coin and there'd be people there watching to make sure that you dropped in your coin and and they would do all this stuff. And so there was a lot of money around. That's why they were living in a palace. And what were they doing with all that money? And uh, were, were they corrupt? Why was it so important that Ananias' sons keep getting to be the high priest? Because they had power and control. They were running the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin had actually used to be just a representative of God was supposed to help keep people on the straight and narrow. You know, I mean, originally the Sanhedrin was picked by Moses to kind of take Moses' place. We didn't want to take all that charismatic power that was given him by the people who would put him up on a pedestal and then try to knock him off and then put him up on a pedestal to try to knock him off. But uh, so he he distributed that role of Moses to the Sanhedrin. But they weren't supposed to make new laws. I mean, they had the ten statements that tell you how the laws of the universe work, how how the law of God, how the kingdom of God works. And then you had the judgments of Moses that tell you how to apply that to a lot of different circumstances and situations to give you kind of a, you know, a jump start on your court system. So they they would look at, you know, well, Moses said, in this case, we should do this. And then somebody said, yeah, but over here he says, well, we got to have mercy, too. And so, yeah, we have to look at, you know, what's going. It can't let our emotions carry us away. And But the, Moses had given them the power of deciding fact and law in the courts based on the judgments of Moses. And this brought about what Jesus called the weightier matters which are law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Faith in what? Faith in the way of God, which was actually the way of forgiveness. I heard somebody talking last night about, you know, religions and Anunnaki and and all these different things. And, and he had an absolutely distorted view of what Moses was trying to tell, what Yahweh was telling Moses you know, when he was speaking to Moses and how he was telling him to set up the government of God to the Israelites. And uh, he, he thinks that they were all this 
you know, genocide and bad and all this, this particular individual. But he has that opinion because he doesn't understand the Old Testament. But then again, that's not surprising. The Pharisees didn't understand the Old Testament. Many modern Christians don't understand the Old Testament, which is why they now have a Corbin in their government, like the Corbin of the Pharisees. They force the contributions and take away from your parents and, and put inheritance taxes on you <laughs> and, and, and capital gains taxes on you to provide a daily bread for all the people in your community. Except for now, I guess. Now people are getting upset about that. They, they still want that free bread from their government. But they're upset that they're giving them to all these foreigners. I guess you can get more free bread or benefits from governments in many countries, not just in the United States. Australia, I heard them talking about the same problem. Uh, goes to the foreigners who come into the country illegally then goes to the people who are already here. <laughs> and instead of the people repenting and saying, well, you know, we should have never been going to men who exercise authority one over the other to get our daily bread. Because Christ said it wasn't to be that way with us. And instead of some pastor making that connection, they're just upset that they're giving that money away to foreign illegals. <laughs> Well, that's not, you know, that's not what Christ, that wasn't the message of Christ. Be upset when your government gives your bread to somebody that, you know, strangers. You know, they're just, they're just baiting you to be more and more selfish. You know, Christ is saying, look at the good Samaritan. He went and gave to somebody who wasn't even a part of his Samaritans. So it is good to go and help people, even if they're illegal aliens. But if you're going to do it like Christ, you have to do it through charity, not through legal charity. Yeah, I heard an interesting statistic, and we'll get right back here to Matthew 26. But uh, somebody was talking about that single-parent families don't do as well statistically as parent families with two adult parents, a male and a female, a woman and a man. They... Statistically, the children turn out way better if you have that situation. And then people have now pointed out this statistic. I've heard it from several different places, but I actually went and looked them up. I actually went and looked up the, the statistical analysis. But they say that if the single parent is a man, then you do, that statistics aren't different than if this, if two parents. It's about the same. If it's two parents in the family, a man and a woman, the children do pretty good. Generally speaking, there's a percentage of kids that get into trouble and it stays pretty low if that's the situation. If it's a single parent who's a man, it stays about the same. But if the single parent is a woman, then it's way more likely to have uh, juvenile delinquency, uh, suicide, uh, you know, uh, poor lifestyle, you know, where they, they don't have a good job and they just do poorly. And so that, that kind of is an indictment of women 
or at least it's a plus that somehow the presence of men make all the difference. But they didn't tell you something about those statistics that I'm going to tell you. Is like 84% of those single parent men are working. <laughs> they got full time jobs. Less than half of the women are working at full time jobs and, and some of the women are only working at part time jobs. It isn't just because it's a woman. Cause I can give you the names of people that have become extremely successful moral people and were raised only by their mothers. And some of their mothers couldn't even read and write. But they were raised by their mothers. And they turned out just fine. But their mothers were working about 70 hours a week in order to do that. That's the... That's the I, I agree that it's good to have a man and a woman in a household. That, 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 and there should be a man in the life of the children. I mean, that is, especially in the teenage years, that's really going to be important. In order to have a good relationship in the teenage years, it's good to have that man early on in the family. But if he's not a working man, it's probably not going to do you much good. Because <laughs> so, that's that seems to be exactly correlated to who's working to support. And if they're on the government dole, that's what's killing that's what's destroying that society. And Christ knew that. And that's why he's an advocate of capitalism and not socialism. But then you'd have to understand Moses to understand that. <laughs> and people don't always understand Moses and so they don't understand Christ. And so if you want to know more about what Moses was doing, look at our past studies. But there's this plotting going on in Matthew 26. We see in verse 4, And consulted they that might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, not on the feast day. So I guess that's their mo- We don't want to kill him on the feast day. We're going to plot against him. <laughs> and, and we're going to dis- be deceitful in our plot against him. But we're not going to do it on the feast day. Lest there be an uproar amongst the people. Oh, oh, it wasn't because it was immoral. They just didn't want to get the people riled up. Because they knew he was popular with the people. So these are really low-life guys. And that word subtlety. I mean, it, it, it only shows up about a dozen times. The Greek word for subtlety only shows up about a dozen times. And it's not, not translated subtlety all the time. It's actually translated guile more than subtlety. It's only translated subtlety twice, deceit twice, crafts once. I mean, in in Mark, I think they translated deceit. Actually, in another place, they translated craft in in Mark. In Mark fourteen one, you'll see it. Take him by craft, talking about the same situation. They translate that same word craft in in Mark. 14.1. But you can see the word used also in Mark 7.21. But it's Jesus talking. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornication, murders, theft, covetousness, wickedness, 
and deceit. There's that word. Deceit. Which is, that's word dolos in the Greek. But then he goes on to say, Jesus goes on to say, lasciviousness. And evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. And of course, now we see these high priests and scribes. Sometimes they list elders there that are plotting evilly to take Christ through this deceit, through this subtlety, through this craftiness, and kill him. And of course, part of that is because he just fired all the money changers. He's the king. They don't want him as king. They want somebody they can control or manipulate or at least on the same page. They know, they know, this is what modern Christians don't know. Jews don't seem to get this either. That he was preaching what Moses was preaching. It would be a government that operated not by professional rulers who exercised authority over you, but by a network of people coming together making free will offerings, which they call in the New Testament charity, to take care of the needy of society. Not coveting their neighbor's goods. Not forcing their neighbor with exercising authority to contribute to what they want for free, like socialists do. You know, people are worried about the Democrats are so socialist. Well, Republicans are socialists. They're always wanting to tax somebody to maybe make a war or to give give armaments to another country or to uh, they promote welfare too by the state they don't promote welfare through the church we can't do it through the church we can't do it through love and charity well that proves to me you're not a Christian if you don't want to do it through love and charity you want to do it through force that's the absolute opposite of what Christ said That's the antithesis of the gospel. It's certainly the opposite of what John the Baptist was saying. He was saying, share your extra coat, your extra food. Free will offerings. Herod was saying, no, no, you sign up. We'll we'll force them to contribute and then we will rightly divide the bread from house to house. Well, the Christians, that's not what they were doing. They were doing it by charity and still had enough to rightly divide the bread from house to house. If you do it the way Herod did it, your your whole nation will end up being bankrupt. You'll end up with runaway inflation, just like Rome. You'll end up with corruption in high places. You won't be able to do anything about it. They'll make all kinds of rules. They'll take and take and take and take and take. So you don't want to do that. If you look at your immediate history and you find you have been doing that at least since 1933 or 1912 or 1913, (laughs) all these landmark places where you decided, oh, let's try something different. Let's covet our neighbor's goods through the power of government and we will create civil charity and we'll take care of one another that way. That won't do anything bad. It'll it dissolved the social bands that keep a free society strong. But we'll get all that free stuff, you know. 
from our temples, our public temples, because we'll be practicing public religion. We'll still need some singing. You know, that was one of the things that we saw when we went back. Uh, did we see that in 24, 25, where they, they actually talked about, no, no, that's actually here in 26. We'll get to that. We'll get to that in 26. I lost which place that I remember them talking about singing a hymn. They almost never do that in the Bible, but they do it occasionally. It's always, it's a good, good thing to do as long as it doesn't distract you from the real good of practicing pure religion and not biting one another through the men who exercise authority. So anyway, these guys are plotting. They're a bunch of cowards. They're afraid of the people. They they want the death of Christ so they can put their guys back as money changers in the temple and keep control and power over these weak people. And they're weak because they've been doing this since Herod. And it just weakens the people. I mean, we knew that from way back 150 years before Christ was born. Polybius was saying that if, if you become accustomed to living at the expense of your neighbor and depending for your livelihood on the property of your neighbor, you'll degenerate. You'll institute rules of force and violence to take away from your neighbor, to bite from your neighbor, to put inheritance tax on your neighbor, to rob the widows and orphans so that you can have free stuff. And you'll think it's okay. Now, you, you may have a little twinge of conscience, but if you go to a church, they'll they'll tickle your ears. They'll tell you you're saved, even though you're doing the opposite of what Christ said. But they'll tell you you're saved and they'll be pretty convincing about it. And if you start thinking too much, they'll just play more music. And they'll get you worked up with emotion. And you'll continue on the road to iniquity. Verse 6, we see, Now when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box. A very precious ointment. And poured it on his head. As he sat at meat. And when his disciples saw it. They had indignation saying to what purpose is this waste. For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, what they were saying, he said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Now he just told them that he was going to be crucified. Betrayed and crucified. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman hath done to hold for a memorial of her. Wow. He's kind of promoting this gal. She's kind of important. We don't seem to know who she is. 
But of course, we don't even seem to know who Simon the leper is. Or why there is this Simon the leper who invited Jesus into his house to eat. We know, we look in the other Gospels and we can find out more about this Simon the leper. But he's not mentioned in all the other Gospels. He's not mentioned at all in John. And we see him here in Matthew. I think we see him in Mark. But that we we do hear another guy mentioned who's Simon. They refer to him sometimes as Simon the Pharisee. But a lot of people were Pharisees. You wouldn't be known as Simon the Pharisee. There's probably thousands of Simons who are Pharisees. And he's never really called that in the biblical text. But when, you know, when I was a little kid, and I remembered this when I read this just recently, and I actually went and looked, and I know where the book is now. I still have the book. <laughs> there was a children's Bible. It was translated by a couple of guys. Uh, you know, I mean, it was, it's basically, it, they tried to put the language so it'd be easier for kids to understand. But these were scholars. And uh, so, you know, it's a version, but it, it was pretty accurate. Because they don't call him Simon the leper. And that. And I remember that. Way back when I was a little kid. It was one of those Kodak moments, I guess. <laughs> and I, I didn't look it up in the book, but I know it, what it says there. Uh, I know that the book is actually just right in the next room. I actually saw it just yesterday. Because I was wondering, when I was thinking about this, preparing for the show, whatever happened to that book? Because I used it with my kids, too. But I remember they didn't call them. It's one of the few places where they don't call them. Simon the leper. And it doesn't make any sense that it's Simon the leper. There's all, you read all the commentaries, which I just read this week, on this, and, you know, they're saying, well, maybe he was one of the lepers that Christ healed to begin with, and maybe he was, you know, they call him that for some other reason. And, well, you know, we, we go through it in detail, and we won't go through it all here. We won't get through this chapter in this show, probably, because it is a really long chapter. And, and we have to prepare for what is really going to be important is the trial of Christ. We really need to understand what's going on. That's why I'm taking you back. Well, what's the conflict? That is not mad at Jesus. There's a reason why they want to get him off the scene and out of the temple. Because he's in the royal treasury telling people what they can do and what they can't do. So it's, it's, he's really upsetting things. And the military is not going to like him. We're going to talk about that too. Soldiers are not going to like Jesus. Now, the truth is, Roman soldiers, Jesus became very popular amongst Roman soldiers. But some of the soldiers for Herod, they weren't so fond of Jesus. Why? Because he was going to do things according to the rules that Moses had laid down. You know, the the Jews that are people that are Jews over in this place they call Israel today, they should understand what Jesus knew about Moses. And they wouldn't be having all the trouble that they're having over there now. I think they're making a lot of bad choices. But, you know, they haven't called me up and asked for my advice. Of course, my advice is going to be the same advice that Moses gave, same advice that Jesus gave on how you're supposed to run your army. Unfortunately, they've kind of designed it after Caesar's uncle. They've changed the way from the way that Moses did it. They changed a lot of things. They're doing a lot of stuff Moses forbid. 
But, uh, you know, and it may not work out for them forever. Because there's always the wrath of God. But uh, I don't want to be too critical of them. I'm going to work mostly on the Christians, but I don't mind explaining Moses to Jews any more than I mind explaining Christ to Christians. Because they need to know a lot more about them than they seem to know right now. <laughs> so, anyway, in this deal with the, the Passover at Simon's, this girl comes in, and we see in some of the other Gospels, there's a huge debate about her. She's a woman of the city. Some think she's a prostitute. Some think she's the daughter of Simon, the leper, or Simon the Pharisee, or as I believe... He's called in the Gospel of John, and we'll talk more about that later, Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus is not, his name isn't Nicodemus naturally. That is a name that only John uses for him. Because John never mentions Simon. He only mentions Nicodemus, and nobody else mentions Nicodemus. So who are all these people? So we need to know the players. And we'll know that and learn more about that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom and get into what's going on with the Eucharist of Christ. So welcome back. So we've gotten through verse 13 of this chapter 26 and this anointing of his feet with this oil in an alabaster jar. According to the other text, uh, the alabaster jar contained at least a pound of this oil. It was worth a huge amount. Uh, the wages for, you know, a good job for a whole year to just to buy that little pound jar, alabaster, that's a stone, so the jar is not a potter stone uh, jar, it's a stone jar. Is actually carved out of that, and it was sealed, so she had to break the seal. And, and there's a lot of evidence that the the nard that was in there, which they call spike nard, was actually the oil that was used and preserved to anoint the new king, which they didn't have. There was no king in Jerusalem. This was the big thing. This is why Jesus coming in and saying, I'm the king, or he didn't even have to say it. The stones would even cry it out. Eventually, Somebody who was on the Sanhedrin voted that Jesus was the king and all the others plotted to kill him. And one of those may have been this Simon guy who they're calling a leper. And I didn't say in the first part of the show. So what did they call him in uh, in this children's Bible? They called him Simon the jar maker because the same word in the Aramaic for jar maker is... It looks like the word leper. And, uh, I mean, it's the same letters as the word leper. Uh, and the, so that you could easily get it mixed up. You know, when you're look, going from Hebrew to Aramaic and Aramaic to Hebrew. And But it didn't make any sense that he was a leper. A leper can't even be in the city and you can't be in the same room with a leper. And uh, he certainly couldn't have been on the Sanhedrin. And uh, there's no reference to the fact that Simon, the guy who I healed, <laughs> they, they never mentioned that. But if he was a jar maker, why would he be a jar maker? Because he might be an oil purveyor. 
a purveyor of precious oils, maker of oils. And he might have lots and lots of oil. He seems to be very rich. And an oil maker would be very rich. You have a lot of people working for him, making jars out of pottery and out of stone. And he'd be, because he produced all these jars, he had a big jar work. He could be known as Simon the Jar Maker. And then he would have access to that alabaster, pound of alabaster oil, nard oil, spike nard oil, that would been, had been held in reserve for years now. Since Herod's death, there had been no king in Jerusalem. Even though th- th- there is a gospel of Nicodemus. And it talks extensively about the fact that, you know, Herod wanted to kill the children. You know, meaning he, he was willing to kill all these children to try to get Jesus murdered. And, of course, his cousin, who was to be the priest, uh, also murdered. And got his, you know, John the Baptist's father murdered. And, and so, and he also talks about the trial of Pontius Pilate. You know, of Jesus. Trial of Jesus by Pontius Pilate. And when we get into that, we're going to read a lot of different commentaries that uh, talk about that trial and some of the things that we know happened by looking at the different Gospels. And they don't understand it because they don't understand how that trial worked. But Jesus not only understood that, he understood why it was important that he was anointed with this oil. Now, I've mentioned oil several times here, and I've told you you need to get oil so that you have it ready for the wedding feast. What does this oil represent? Well, Nicodemus talks about it in the Gospel of Nicodemus. Now, there's a lot of places. There's places where they talk about Simon, who was a yeah, oil purveyor, you know, produced oil in jars and all this stuff. They talk about that in the Talmud. He was put under house arrest. He couldn't leave Jerusalem. You know, he actually, under guard, he got to go and see his family off who sailed away. But then he had to stay in Jerusalem. He was extremely wealthy. One of the third richest wealthy men in all of Judea. So they weren't going to let him out of sight. They weren't going to kill him. They they wanted to know where the rest of his treasure was. <laughs> that was one of the things. He had all these connections because as an oil purveyor, he's buying stuff from abroad. He has all kinds of contacts from abroad. And, uh, and he also has... Uh, you know, no shipping areas and all this stuff. And so they didn't want to kill him. He was very influential. He'd been a member of the Sanhedrin. And uh, we know that he wasn't a leper. But he was a Simon. And sometimes he fits the same description of this Nicodemus. But we'll get into more of that later and find out. But who is this woman that Jesus says that we're going to all remember? I don't think she was a prostitute. I don't think she was a stranger. I think she had access to expensive, expensive oil. And when they talk about her being a woman of the city, this is what that expensive oil, you would put that in trust. Somebody has to watch out for that oil in that sealed container. And once you also understand that there are, the temples were, Government buildings for the civil government. 
was a theocracy, but all, all governments are based on somebody acting like God. <laughs> Might be the mayor, like Mayor Wheeler up there in uh, Portland. Sometimes that guy acts like a god. <laughs> He's a lesser god, but, uh, you know, he, he seems to think that he can rule things. He's making a mess out of everything, but there he is. So all this intrigue, this is why we wrote the article of, you know, factions at the altar. This is why we're talking about this is a plot. These are these are government workers working in the temple. And they're making big bucks off of the people. And Jesus is showing them a different kind of government, a different kind of system. And, and it's Judas who's really complain, complaining about the price. And we see this in verse 14 where he says, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me? And I will deliver him unto you, meaning Christ. And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray Christ. Now, that may have already happened. It may have happened after this event. But it's put here in this order by Matthew so that we see it because now we're coming up on the Passover. We don't know exactly how many days we're passing from this event. And some people try to tell us that two separate women came in knowing to Jesus at two separate times and everything like this is a big thing to do. Now I think it's the same woman and... uh and there's a reason why she had that alabaster jar of stuff that's worth tens and tens of thousands and thousands of dollars. And why she was pouring it out. And we also know from other texts that give us a little bit fuller picture of this event. That Jesus, she doesn't pour it all out. He says, save this for my burial. He gives her the remaining, which maybe is only $10,000 worth of oil left. I don't know how much she poured out to begin with. But he's, he gives her and tells her to take this oil that she meant to put all on him right then. And he says, save this for my burial. So that would lead me to suspect, you know, Jesus knowing what people are thinking and what people are planning and what's going to happen in the future that this lady is going to be at his burial with that oil to anoint him. She's, she's pretty dedicated. He's already said that he wants this, this whole story to be a memorial of her. Like she's important to the, everything. So, you know, most people don't even know who she is. They just, oh, she's some pro- prostitute who happens to have hundred thousand dollars worth of oil <laughs> runs in and does this and no come on now put the pieces of the puzzle together and that's what we're going to do as we go to the other gospels we'll come back and we'll put these pieces of the puzzle together i put it together several articles this week and uh actually even put the whole gospel of nicodemus up so we can take a look at it now is that's not in the bible that's an apocrypha we know that we have documents of the Gospel of Nicodemus that go all the way back, you know, to like 400 A.D., maybe even earlier, if we go into the fragments. 
But it was pretty rough then, and we know that it had already been translated into Greek, so it wasn't originally written in Greek. And so, and we don't really know necessarily who Nicodemus is. But I'm suspecting, and we'll, we'll go into more of that, that it's, it is the same Simon the jar maker. Not Simon the leper, but Simon the jar maker. The purveyor of oil. Extremely rich man who was there at the destruction of Jerusalem. At, at the temple at Jerusalem. He was there, still. Although he might have been called by another name that we know was put on him. And, you know, then you have to go into the translation of Nicodemus. But let's get a little farther through this. So we know that the Passover is coming up, verse 17. Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. Now, he goes on in verse 19, and the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover, which is a big job. And now, when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. Now, just going to a few other Gospels, I don't make, I'll put the reference in here later, but the man that they were going to, Matthew doesn't specify, but in another gospel they say that the man was carrying water from a well to a house. And he evidently has a big house so that he could provide for, you know, 12 apostles and probably some of their family members. We don't, we don't know who all was there. We know that the 12 apostles, but they didn't just travel alone. There were other people that were traveling with them because they're there in the different conversations. But he's carrying water. Well, that normally water is only carried by women. So that tells me right away, this guy who can give him permission to come to this house is carrying water, a task normally only done by women, except amongst one particular group, which is the Essenes. The Essene men prided themselves at at being willing to do jobs even women would do. Humility was extremely important to them. Sharing, you know, they had oil, they would share it, you know, if somebody else was injured and they used it medicinally, they would share their oil with that person. That was a big thing, sharing. Mercy was a big thing. And that's a, I'll give you a little hint in the Gospel of Nicodemus. They talk about this. They talk about it in a lot of places. They talk about the tree of mercy. That you get your oil from the tree of mercy. (laughs) And of course, Jesus says the weightier matters are law, judgment, mercy, and faith. So you have to have mercy and mercy. A heart of mercy. That's where charity is coming from. It's not coming because you want to make a deal with God. I'll be real charitable and you'll take care of me and you'll protect me because I'm real charitable. No, it's about mercy. 
So that, it's a little that squeeze of your heart to be merciful to your neighbor instead of sending men who exercise authority to your neighbor's house to take away from them. You wouldn't be doing that because your heart's full of mercy, not greediness, not covetousness. And so therefore, that's how you get oil. <laughs> Just a little heads up. You put the put the pieces together. So anyway, they're going to have this Passover at that guy's house and they, they prepare now, you know, prepare the fest, festival. And, and I knew a guy, uh, I won't mention his name, but he's a famous guy. And he had Passover meal at one of his festivals. They started going back and doing the Feast of the Tabernacle and all that kind of stuff. Or at least they thought they were. They were missing the whole thing. Same as the people who think they, they gotta go execute a red heifer and burn it up. Uh, <laughs> If they really knew what that meant, I could explain to them the strategy they need to use against Hamas that would protect them and protect innocent people. But since they don't want to know what the sacrifice of the red heifer is, then they're condemned to go the route they're going. And even though it may bring fire and brimstone upon northern Israel in the days to come. Just a little heads up. I don't wish any ill on anybody. I want everybody to repent. I want everybody to be saved. But Moses and Jesus are telling you the way. Other preachers have clouded these words so you don't put the words together. They're all there. They all tell you. You don't need the gospel of Nicodemus. I want to use that to kind of set the scene of the time because it is a historical document that reaches way back into that error and they present the case there. So it's the same as I go and read the commentaries of all the Gospels, you know, Barnes and all the different guys who have their uh, Gospel commentaries. I read them. Some of them are just ridiculous. You know, they they don't get it. Some, well, that's a good point. That guy made a good point. And I try to share it with you. But in order to prepare for the Passover, they have to kill a sheep, skin the sheep, take all the guts out, wash all the guts. You know, the, the, the awful, what they call the awful. Wash it out. Get all the feces out. Clean it out. Spick a span. And they don't get a garden hose to do it with. <laughs> they have to just wash it and clean it and clean it and clean it. This is all day thing. And then they stuff it all back in, sew it back up, and roast it. And they're going to eat it that night. That, that's preparing for the Passover. And there's other stuff, unleavened bread and bitter herbs and all those other things. All of which are symbols. Don't get lost in the metaphor of the symbols and the rituals. Because then you'll skip the weightier matters. You won't attend to the weightier matters. And of course, this is what the Pharisees are doing. Which is why they have this confused, convoluted view of things like the Passover and leavened bread. And we've explained what leaven and unleavened means. And it's, it doesn't have anything to do with yeast. And sacrifice the red heifer has nothing to do with red-haired cows. This just doesn't have anything to do with that. Those are symbols. Your religion becomes superstition. And before you know it, you're going to be doing the exact opposite of what Moses and Jesus were saying. 
Verse 21. And as they did eat and said, Verily I say unto you, He said, Verily I say unto you, That one of you shall betray me. You know, we don't have any, you know, like, what what happened when they said that? I mean, (laughs) there had to be some looks around the room. He said it there. Did everybody hear it? I don't know. We know a number of people heard it. And they were exceedingly sorrowful and began, every one of them, to say unto him, Lord, is it I? That's an interesting response. It's not... Is it the Zebedee brothers? (laughs) Is it that Peter guy? Is it... Who is it? They're asking... Most of them are asking, Is it I? Will I betray you? That... These are exceptional guys. And they're starting to learn the lesson. You know... Most of the people today... They would blame it on somebody else. These guys are wondering, am I going to do something bad? They know he's done, he's been doing this with them, where he knows what somebody's saying, what somebody's thinking. They know there's no secrets. In verse 23, and he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. Well, that guy didn't hear him say that. <laughs> Judas didn't hear him say that. So everybody's not hearing all these things that he's saying. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. So, evidently everybody didn't hear this. Somebody heard enough of it so that we get the report. But it's very interesting where he talks about the Son of Man. Now, remember what I said earlier about the Son of Man. Because it's, that phrase is in a lot of places in the Bible, but it doesn't always just mean Jesus. Because there are other prophets that are referred to as the Son of Man. And we're all children of God. Which is why there is that parable. Which every time you hear it now, you should be reminded... That just because you're the children of God doesn't mean you're the part of the Son of Man. Son of Man is the obedient children of God. There's others that are not obedient children of God that say crazy things like, we have no king but Caesar. They're not the children of God anymore. They have their father. I mean, Jesus talks about that. Your father who is Satan, the adversary. So, the important thing is not to point the fingers at somebody who is the child of Satan and, you know, all this stuff. Because we want them saved too. We want them to repent that they might be saved. And I, you never know who might be saved. Caiaphas could be saved. Simon, who is on the Sanhedrin, he could be saved. 
And, and I suspect that because there's reference to what Simon was thinking when he saw this woman who he considered to be a sinner, could have been his own daughter. His daughter could have been a sinner. And he's thinking to himself in another gospel that he wouldn't say this if he knew that she was a sinner. He was keeping it quiet if it was his daughter. He didn't want to tell everybody. But Jesus spoke to him, said, I have something to say to you. Because Jesus knew his thoughts. And of course now he's going to find out that Jesus knew your thoughts. And he's going to explain about the the debtor who had much to be forgiven and the one that had very little to be forgiven. And they were both forgiven. And who loved him more? The one that had the most to be forgiven. Well, that's a story you might tell a guy whose daughter has been a sinner and is now repentant. <laughs> so, anyway. so, I mean, it's just I can't prove it. But then again, that's why Christ talks in parables. Because ultimately, you don't want to believe in Christ based on the knowledge of men, but by the Holy Spirit moving in you, anointing you. But of course, if you're going to get anointed by the Holy Spirit, you got to be merciful. you got to walk in forgiveness. Otherwise, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. So, Judas is going to go do his betrayal thing. And we start off here in verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, unleavened bread, and blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, and said, Take Eat this is my body. People make a big deal out of this. That this is the Eucharist. The the Eucharist of Christ. And of course, that's one of the things, one of the clever things they do is like the Corbin. They don't translate the Corbin into the sacrifice of the Pharisees making the word of God to none effect. Because you might actually start putting the pieces together. So they call it the Corbin of the Pharisees. Which will play into the description when Judas goes to give back the 30 ounces of silver or the 30 denarii of silver. But Eucharist is the word for thanksgiving. Thankful for the opportunity of giving. Why is giving important? Well, giving is one of the forms of mercy. That you have mercy on when the Good Samaritan was giving to the guy beat up. He was bandaging his wounds and he was giving him a ride and he was paying for his room at the hotel and and uh, that's all giving. But it's also showing mercy. It's also squeezing the oil <laughs> out of the tree of mercy. So that you'll have oil. Good thing. You have oil. Because you're going to need that oil if you want to get let in. You don't want to be having no oil now. So you're going to have to make a daily practice of mercy to get that oil. This is going to require some giving. We'll be right back to the Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're talking about this Eucharist, where this this is really important to a lot of religions, this uh, take this bread and eat it. And, And Jesus took bread... Usually you take bread for yourself. You're not handing it out. 
to other people. You take and eat this is my body, this bread. Before he said that, he blessed it. Now, there's a couple of different words in the Greek that can mean blessed. Makarios can be translated blessed. This particular one is a, a composite word that he uses that actually has to do with the logos again. It's ulogos is in this particular case is is the word that he's logio is the actual Greek in that in the text inside the text, but that has to do with blessing people to consecrate something to so that people would prosper with it. He wants you to prosper with this bread. And he's taking the bread that he took for himself. He's breaking off a piece. Because that's his bread now. Because he picked it up. You pick it up. That's yours. And he's handing it to them. And he's saying, take what I'm giving you and eat it. I'm giving you this bread. Just like the daily bread. You're supposed to pray for your daily bread to the Father in heaven, not to the fathers of the earth. But this is consecrated bread. So, again, this is a symbolic event where he is blessing them with the bread that he blessed through this right reason. All these things that he's said, all these things that he's explained, all these things that he's taught them while he was there. But he's also let us know that you're not going to have me all the time. But then eventually also say that I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit that can be your comforter. He didn't say I was going to send you a bunch of ministers who are going to tickle your ears and that will be your comforter. No, he says I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. But he is instituting a church. He is appointing a kingdom. They are do have a task to fulfill. And we've given you a little hints at, at what that task is going to look like. And for a little while it's going to be daily in the temple. And but of course we know right away in Acts and uh, that it it reaches out all over the Roman Empire and beyond, where they're sharing bread and sharing provisions. Just like when we started the gospel with John the Baptist, they're going to be sharing coats, they're going to be sharing tents, they're going to be sharing houses, <laughs> they're going to be you know. Going to one another, showing mercy on one another, blessing one another, because that's going to be a part of the full armor of God. If you're not doing that, you're not really a follower of Christ. You may say you are, but you might actually be, if you're actually following the ways of Nimrod and Cain and Caesar, you might be actually workers of iniquity. If you institute systems where you have to do less for your parents because you got the government who exercises authority taking care of your parents, well, this is going to alter your society. It's also going to be a chink in your armor. It may, may just remove your armor altogether. And whatever comes, comes for you and devours you. There's an interesting story about Nicodemus and uh, others. Oh, actually, a story about Pontius Pilate comes to mind. Uh, that uh, Pontius Pilate, you know, he got into trouble after this. He was he never was in power again uh, after this trial. And he was ordered to go back to see Caesar. And then, of course, before he gets to Caesar, which is Tiberius, which was his, theoretically, was his grandfather-in-law, 
because his wife was the granddaughter of Tiberius Caesar. Caesar, Tiberius died. So now he's going to have to face Caligula. He's going to have to be tried by Caligula. That's not a, that's not a good deal. <laughs> Caligula's, that guy's crazy. And uh, he didn't care one bit for Tiberius. And there's, there's some evidence that Caligula actually had Tiberius smothered to death. You know, plotted against him. Impatient for his death so he could take over. So he, he's kind of a crazy guy. You don't want to be tried by that guy. But supposedly, there's a story that every time that Pontius Pilate appeared before him, he got soft-hearted and couldn't convict him. And so, still to this day, we're not sure what happened. There's a, there's a story where he was convicted and sent away to exile uh, in uh, Vienna. And another one where he was exiled to a mountain uh, in Switzerland. And there's supposedly a grave there in one of these places. But uh, he's actually his wife is considered a saint by Greek Orthodox because they started churches. He, he was converted. That's possible. It's not required that you believe it. But, you know, Jesus would talk to him. Jesus talked to Simon the leper. I got something to say to you. If he's willing to talk to you, that's that's a good sign. <laughs> so, uh, it's the same way with the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit's telling you stuff. That That's a good sign. But then again, you have to find out, is it the Holy Spirit? Well, is the Spirit that's talking to you in conformity to Christ? Is the Gospel that the Holy Spirit is revealing to you is it saying that it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods? Or is it saying, maybe I shouldn't be coveting my neighbor's goods? Maybe I should be showing mercy to my neighbor and blessing my neighbor and not going to the governments of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other. Because Jesus did say it wasn't to be that way with us. And if we're going to follow Jesus, it kind of backs us into a corner that something's wrong with that system. Of course, we've already explained to you what's wrong with it. It's full of leaven. If you don't understand what that is, go look up our article on leaven. <laughs> anyway, so he took a, a, a cup and he gave thanks and gave it to them saying, Drink ye all of it. And for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So has that taken place? Or is that something of the future? Because we're going to see later, because this is not the only place where we see this. We actually see him sitting down and eating again. They make a big point out of it that he was eating with them in his father's kingdom. He wasn't going to eat again until he did that. And there he is eating again after the resurrection. So the kingdom, when he appointed the kingdom, it wasn't postponed. It's just different than what you think it looks like. So anyway, in the next verse, verse 30, we see, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. So they're 
he did do some singing. But it's all this other stuff that's important. And again, we, we can see this in other renditions of this Passover feast. It even becomes clear that when he says, this is my body, he's not necessarily talking about the bread. He's saying, this is my corpus. And if you know what a Passover is, why partly why I mentioned it, I think it's why I mentioned it. I was led to mention it, and now it makes sense. You have to roast that lamb whole. In the Koran, you can cut it up. Big mistake. You can't cut it up. You don't want to do that. See, in the Koran, when you have a sacrifice, you, you cut up the meat, and you have to deliver the meat that's going to go to the poor, because they understand that, you know, mercy is part of that oil too. You got to deliver that meat to the poor before you eat any of the meat yourself. You have to do that first. But according to Moses' Passover, it's got to be a whole lamb. You got to cook it together. You got to sit down with the poor in your house. You got to share what you have with the poor in your house. Because they're telling you how the government of God works. Of course, this is not just any poor. This is the brethren. This is the poor that is actually seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We're not supposed to invite... I mean, we can invite every alcoholic and drug addict and, you know, sinner on the street. But he's got to leave his sinning at the door. (laughs) If he wants to keep on sinning in your living room, don't let him in. Shut the door. How are you going to know if you're shutting the door on the right guy? Check and see if they got any oil. (laughs) Have they been showing mercy? Because they'll say, oh, I repent. You know, forgive me, I repent. But if the next day they're drinking again, then you know, I I can't really see that. (laughs) You're going to have to start pouring out all that stuff that you've been getting drunk on. You have to change your ways. You have to get, you know, judge them by their works. Are they, are they really sorry? Are they really repenting? But yeah, we're supposed to invite the poor right in if they got the oil of mercy showing up in their life. At least enough to light a lamp. So this is, you know, I'm using the metaphor. I'm slipping back and forth in the metaphor trying to explain to you. Because that's the song you want to learn to sing. That's the hymn you want to learn to sing. The song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Verse 31, Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye, have, all ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will be, I will go before you into Galilee. So he's going to make an appearance to a lot of people in Galilee. And then eventually there's going to be Pentecost, you know, 50 days later. And they're, they're going to have courage. But it's not because these words give them courage. 
it's because the Holy Spirit will give them courage. But the Holy Spirit will come because they're repentant, sorrowful, and willing to show mercy one to another. Forgive one another. Very important. Verse 33, Peter answers and says unto them, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night, before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice, three times. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. So they're all hearing this. They're all saying this. Of course, evidently Judas is left. But they're all seeming to think, we're not going to do it. But of course, they're relying on their own strength and character. Which of course, in our study on all is vanity. Remember that? You cannot do this of your own strength any more than you can decide what is good and evil with your own intelligence. You're going to need the divine spark of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And because you don't know how to be merciful. You don't know how to give to the poor. If you just do it of your own compassion, which good you have compassion, but if you just do it of your own compassion, you will weaken the poor the same as legal charity does. Because there is no Holy Spirit in legal charity. Because legal chari- charity is an institutional force that comes about when you become accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for your livelihood on the property of others. Before you know it, you know I've had people say they're Catholic, say they're Christian. I say, well, there should be an inheritance tax. Yeah, he's going to lose everything. Because <laughs> as you judge, so shall you be judged. There should be no inheritance tax. There should be no income tax. But there is, and, and you should pay it. Because you've gone into the bondage of Egypt. I mean, that you, you still have to pay your tally of bricks. Jesus is very clear about that. That if you owe the tax, you you should pay the tax. Now, if you say, well, it's not my fault, I don't owe the tax and everything, you want to blame it on somebody else, no, 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 it's your fault. You have to, you have to take the fault on yourself. You should have known better. You didn't know better. Okay. We all didn't know better. Except by the grace of God, we'd all be fooled. And so, if you want the grace of God to come in, you have to be willing to admit that deep down we're all fools. We all do foolish things. But now you have to repent and start attending to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, so you can get that oil, and faith. And of course, you don't conjure up faith with your intellectual knowledge, your catechism, and your memorized doctrine. Faith is a gift too. That comes with the Holy Spirit. So in verse 36, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane. And saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here, while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. So, some of the apostles 
or over here. You guys just stay. We're going to go yonder. He takes Peter with him and the two sons of Zebedee. And then saith he unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tear ye here and watch with me. And he has this word watch. Because I said that they're going to pray and they're going to watch. And of course that word watch is the Greek word Gregorio. <laughs> That's what my mom used to call me. Gregorio. Except that sometimes she'd call me Gregorino. But that was usually when I was being a little bit too precocious. But yeah, that's it means to watch. So, Jesus talked about praying. He actually also talks about watching. And we need to understand what watching is because we need to watch and pray with Christ. And he was exceedingly sorrowful, so he said, watch with me. And so, I want everybody to learn to watch and pray. But uh, you need to understand what to watch is. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh my Father, if it is be, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. So right away, he's still saying his prayer is to do the will of the Father. Not his own will, but the will of the Father. But it's very clear that he doesn't want to do this. This cup, he would like it to this burden to be taken off of him. But he's willing to do what the Father wants. That's that's really where we all have to be. But see, Jesus knows what's coming because he's already been watching. He's been aware. He's, He's been in the moment. So, in the first hour, and he cometh unto his disciples after this hour of praying, at least an hour of praying, and findeth them asleep. They're not watching. And saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Now, I'm putting some inflection in that. We don't know exactly what inflection Jesus had with that. He may have been more patient in his voice than I am. But he goes on in verse 41, Watch and pray. That ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So then we go on to verse 42. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, O Father, if this cup could, may, you know, if this cup may not pass away from me, except that I drink it, thy will be done. So it's a little bit different, but it's along the same lines. They're they're summarizing. He's doing this for an hour. He's not just reciting these words over and over again. But he's feeling the pain of this cup. And and he's feeling, you know, he's feeling the agony of it. This is why we don't see the future all the time. Because we have to live in the moment. But Christ, because he can see, he can see the future. And he can feel the pain of the future. And he's dealing with it. And he's accepting it. And he came and found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy. And they had just eaten a lamb. (laughs) 
And it was interesting that in order to celebrate the Passover, they should have been still in there till sunrise. So it's difficult to say. Did they stay there all that time, sleep during the day, and then now this is the second night? Difficult to say. It was very clear because, I mean, Judas has to go all these places and make this arrangement and come back with these troops and everything, so he's going to be busy too. It may not be really important. The important thing is that we learn to watch and pray. And in 44 it says, And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Same idea. Same thing passing. You know, when we we see this same words, like I said, there's lots of words in the Greek for the word word. But there it says the same logos. He's, he's saying the same right reason. He's, he's making the same sense. He's being a part of the same spiritual prayer. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now. Take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Not just a sinner, but sinners. And of course, that's a particular word too. Hamartolos, uh, tolos, uh, which has this idea of, you know, missing the mark. Uh, but these are, it actually has the idea of being devoted to sin. These are actually wicked men. They didn't, they're not just making a little mistake. They're not just stumbling. They're dedicated to sin, that they're sinning and they intend to keep on sinning and that's that's where they're coming from and that's where they're going to. We've gone through the third hour and then now we're coming up on verse 46. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. So he's waking them up because he knows they're coming. And while he yet spake, Lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave him a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Which is almost, why have thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And behold, one of them, which were with Jesus, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear, cut his ear right off. And then said Jesus unto him, Put put up again thy sword into thy place. For all that all they that take up the sword shall perish by the sword. So Jesus has another plan. And we're not going to be able to go into it Right now, but we'll go into it in the afternoon show and eventually we'll have all this on the website at preparingyou.com.
and hisholychurch.org. But until then, peace on your house, and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.